Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. You know, all of us here at Open Your Eyes are avid podcast listeners, and over the years, we've learned so much by being part of a unique podcast community that's dedicated to helping each other improve and grow. And one of the most requested topics we get here is how to be a better leader. Many of us, while we travel down the road in life, at some point, turn around and look behind us, and we see others following on that same road. And we open our eyes to realize we are leading. And it's easy to feel inadequate as a leader. So for the next few episodes, we're focusing on skills that will help us all lead better. And I hope today that you hear something that can help you to get a new view of your place as a leader and how you can help others live to their potential. And if you enjoy this podcast, please join us in our effort to reach more people. Take a minute to share this podcast link with a friend. Send it to someone who needs a little encouragement. Those few words and a new perspective can make a big difference for them as well. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how to get constructive in your life and leadership. Now, if I were to ask you to name the top five countries in the world in terms of population, could you name them? Could you name them in order of highest to lowest? Go ahead. Give it a try. The country with the highest population, as you guessed it, China, with 1.425 billion people. The next, India, with 1.417 billion. Then the U.S. with 338 million, Indonesia with 275 million, and Pakistan with 235 million people. In one year's time, however, these rankings will change. Next year, India will overtake China as the largest country in terms of population. China's growth is negative, while India's is rising. And India is also growing in other ways. This year, India is projected to grow their economy by 8%. That will make India one of the strongest economies in the world. And even though the average household income right now is less than $10,000 per year, right now in India, there's rising employment, increasing wages, and it seems the entire country is under construction. The growth rate of the construction industry in India is 17%. Thousands of miles of roads, bridges, highway corridors, and millions of houses are under construction. And being constructive is something Manoj Nelayatu learned at a young age. He was born in Mahe, India. His father was a doctor, a neurologist. His mother was an OBGYN. And soon after his birth, they moved to Marion Station, Pennsylvania. There, he attended Catholic grammar school. There, he felt like an outsider because he was Hindu. He often heard his teachers tell him he was going to hell. And they even got upset because he wasn't Catholic, but he got the best grades in class. Well, as a young man, his father was insistent that he be a doctor. But his mother was different. She wanted Manoj to follow his passion. And his mother's influence was momentous in his life. She was a builder and would help him build on and construct what he loved doing. He was given a Super 8 camera, and by the time he was 17, with his mother's help, he had made 45 home movies. The interesting thing is his mother was not a filmmaker, far from it. 
And she did more than support. She helped magnify his passion and creativity. Minoj earned a merit scholarship to NYU and then the NYU School of Arts. While there, he changed his name to M. Knight, using the same M.N. initials as his first and middle name, Manoj Neliatu. And from that point on, he was M. Knight Shyamalan. While he was a student, his parents loaned him money to make his first film. And for his second film, Wide Awake, his parents were the associate producers. The film was about a 10-year-old Catholic boy who searches for God. No doubt an echo from Knight's childhood in Catholic school. The film made only a fraction of the total cost to make it, but his parents continued to be constructive. So, Knight worked on his screenwriting, helping with several screenplays. But for the longest time, he had an idea. He had gone to a funeral of a friend, and there had been a boy there talking to himself, and he wondered what the boy was thinking. And he had gone home and wrote down four words. I see dead people. It was just a start, and those four words started to work away at Knight's imagination. So he started to write a screenplay from the perspective of the 10-year-old boy. He would write, then delete, then rewrite and revise, and on it went for a year. But Shyamalan stayed with the process. He created a spec script called The Sixth Sense. A spec script is a non-commissioned screenplay. And David Vogel, the president of production at Disney, read it and loved it. And without getting corporate approval, he bought the rights for $3 million and agreed to the stipulation that Shyamalan would direct the film. Well, Disney later dismissed Vogel and sold the rights to Spyglass Entertainment. The Sixth Sense is a story about Malcolm Crowe, a child psychologist who returns home one night with his wife after being honored at a dinner only to find a young man had broken into their house. This young man's name is Vincent Gray, a former patient of Crow's. Crow had treated Gray as a child for hallucinations. Then the young man shoots Malcolm, and the story begins. Crow begins working then with a nine-year-old boy named Cole Sear. At first, Crow thinks the boy is delusional. But as the story unfolds, Crow becomes convinced the boy does see dead people and together they work to discover why. The boy's mother also comes to believe her son, and as the story ends, Malcolm realizes that he is in fact dead and has been speaking with the boy as a dead person. Well, through a series of events, the movie finally got underway. The studio had a contract with Bruce Willis from another film, and he was signed on to play the role of psychologist Malcolm Crow. Haley Joe Osment, a young boy, was perfect for the role of Cole Sear and was signed. Donnie Wahlberg lost 60 pounds, slept in the streets, starved himself, and played the role of the former troubled patient Vincent Gray to perfection. Knight made interesting decisions. For example, the color red is absent from any shot except when he wanted to convey extreme emotion. So, in a scene when the boy is visited by the dead at a birthday party, Cole, the boy, is wearing a red sweater. At the end of the movie, when Bruce Willis's character discovers he is actually dead, Malcolm Crowe's wife is wearing a red dress and red lipstick. Shyamalan appeared in a cameo role in the movie, like he's done in many of his films, and included a scene from one of his 45 films he made as a boy, something he has done in every film he's made. In the end, the Sixth Sense would go on to grow $672 million at the box office. 
It is the second highest grossing horror film in history. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, and it sits number 50 on the list of 101 greatest screenplays ever written by the Writers Guild of America. Shyamalan would go on to write, direct, and produce other movies, including Signs, Glass, and other films. And the most interesting thing is this. Critics say that because The Sixth Sense and Shyamalan were new to the world, meaning he wasn't well-known, and the story wasn't a series or a sequel, everything about the movie was a surprise. It was so different, so unconventional and surprising, that after its release, the word quickly spread, and it was its newness that made it such a success. The world hadn't experienced anything like it. And here's the question. How do successes like this happen? How do you construct an M. Night Shyamalan who's bold enough to spend a year on a screenplay and bring the questions he had as a young Hindu boy in a Catholic grammar school to life and to the screen in such unique and amazing ways? How does that happen? A mother and a father who were constructive. Two parents who came from India, from a country of poverty, and saw that it was possible to be a neuroscientist and move to America, and instead of pushing their son into their way of thinking, had the foresight and courage to build on his dreams and to produce his early films, to support him in his early failures, and to be constructive in his life. There is a power in being constructive. And there are great results waiting for the leader who leads by being constructive. From among all the materials of which we make our life, early in life, faith is perhaps the most fragile. It can be easily suppressed. And yet at the same time, faith is perhaps the most powerful force if it can be grown and built. Great leaders know how to start faith, how to author the script for organizations to follow, and how to be constructive to give light to other people's faith as well. You know, the scripture says that God is the author and finisher of our faith. And he's a great example of being constructive. He is a being who helps us write to start and build to construct our faith, our dreams, our life. And it's not just his life he's building, it's ours. You see, he has a sense, a pattern for how to be constructive in the process. So as we learn to be like him and become people and leaders who are constructive, let's talk about the principles that help us do that better. Now, you may think the definition of constructive is not being critical because we often use the term constructive criticism. Not so. That's much too narrow. The primary definition of constructive, according to Webster, is promoting improvement or development. Now, the synonyms of constructive are valuable, profitable, worthwhile, beneficial, and helpful. So, when you are constructive in a meeting, for example, you add to the value or benefit of the topic you're discussing. When you're constructive in a relationship, you make it worthwhile and are advantageous in the process. When you're constructive as a leader, you build something other than yourself. Now, like you, I've worked with constructive leaders, and they're apt to guide, and they're apt to work to expend their own effort to bring about the success of a project by helping other people do the leading. The constructive leader believes that to get the organization or family where it needs to go, 
They must develop the people who make up that organization. They will work through others and focus on the building of others to reach their goals. And this incredible talent happens when a leader adopts the constructive mindset. There, they gain significant influence and achieve results faster than they thought possible. Years ago, two authors described leadership in two opposing ways. The first method of leadership was to lead like a buffalo. For whatever reason, buffalo follow a single leader. The lead buffalo selects the path, travels in front, decides when to move and when not to move. And all the buffalo follow. Likewise, perhaps you and I think that is the way to lead. Meaning, we grow in personal capability and have the answers and give the orders and place a greater emphasis on our own pathfinding than that of our team or organization. Now, you may be the best at what you do. Your sense for the right path may be better than your team. For example, as a parent, your pathfinding will likely be better than your children's. However, your job as a parent leader is not to train your children to be great followers of your path. Your job is to teach them to be great pathfinders themselves. The second type of leader, the authors describe by using geese as the example. When geese fly, they fly in a V formation. Why? Because flying behind another goose gives the bird in the back a bit of a rest because they benefit from the wind resistance. The draft pulls them along. And the geese, like a peloton of bikers, take turns flying as the lead goose. And as a result, the flock can fly farther, longer. So, the job of a leader in most situations is to get the people to join in your vision, develop real capability, and be responsible for their own performance. And when leaders can open their eyes and buy into the constructive way of leading, it begins to empower their team. Then if all of that's true, then how do you be a constructive leader and create ownership, an ownership environment on your team or family so that they fly in a V formation? Well, creating this type of ownership isn't easy. A recent Gallup poll found that only 14% of employees feel that they're managed in a way that they feel ownership. And in my experience, there are three essential ingredients to building ownership on a team. The first ingredient is efficacy. <laughs> What's that? It's the ability or perceived ability on the part of each team member that they can produce the result. That means for your child or your team member or any organization member, their feelings of ownership rise as their sense for how to produce the result rises. Capability drives ownership. And as a constructive leader, your job is to build capability and perceived capability. So if you want your child to own being in a family of love, then talk about coach emphasize love. And soon, they too will get curious and excited about it. And that's when ownership begins. If you want your team members to own their role on the team, then talk about, value, and coach their specific role. Now, the second way to create ownership is identity. When your team members identify with and see themselves as part of what you're trying to do, they will become owners. In a recent large study in retail organizations, they found that employees rarely arrive on a team with a fully formed view of identity that's aligned with a company. 
And they found that the manager who supervises the employee had more to do with creating identity than any other factor. What does that mean for you? Each member on your team needs someone close to them who acts like an owner and is a clear owner on your team. And this requires constructive leaders organize their teams in ways that ownership grows by proximity to others. Insightful organization is a clear skill of constructive leaders. Third, ownership's created by job satisfaction. And ironically, job satisfaction is largely created by a person's level of commitment to the cause. Those who are less committed have less job satisfaction. So ask yourself, is your team valued, challenged, and productive in their job? If so, they're more likely to be committed and more likely to be satisfied and feel like owners. As one author put it, leadership is the art of making problems so interesting and their solutions so constructive that everyone wants to get to work and deal with them. Now, I've also learned that constructive leaders are great borrowers. They borrow important events and perspectives to construct a higher level of performance. On September 9th, 2001, the New York Yankees were playing their rivals, the Boston Red Sox, at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees were the defending world champions and trying to maintain their lead in the American League East. Team captain Derek Jeter didn't play due to an injury, yet they won the game 7-2. When Derek woke up two days later in his Manhattan apartment on 9-11 and checked his cell phone, there was a message from a friend asking him about the World Trade Center. So he quickly turned on the television. He didn't know what to do, but he knew he needed to do something. So later in the day, Jeter and his teammates went to ground zero. He said all they could do was listen and offer their support to the families gathered there looking for their lost loved ones. And you know, still today, he refuses to share what was said, saying those stories should remain private. Days after 9-11, the Yankees, like all of baseball, didn't know what was appropriate, when to resume playing. But they knew the country needed some normalcy and that they also needed to gather together. So on September 18th, the Yankees resumed play in Chicago. Then on September 25th, the Yankees played their first home game since 9-11. Now before the game, security was extremely tight. Every bag was checked and it took extra time for the 54,000 people to enter the stadium. Then before the game, Gathered on the field was a line of New York firefighters and policemen and women. Mayor Rudy Giuliani joined the front line of New York servicemen and women, and the Harlem boys sang, We Shall Overcome. Then they joined Michael Bolton as they sang, Lean on Me. And finally, tenor Ronan Tynan sang, God Bless America. There was not a dry eye in the place. New Yorkers and the world watching on television came together to show gratitude for so many who gave their lives to protect and serve. And ever since that day, on September 25th, 2001, God Bless America has been sung during the seventh inning at every Yankee home game. At each game, those in attendance join their voices to collectively proclaim, God Bless America. Stand beside her, guide her through the night with a light from above. Well, that night on September 25th, Roger Clemens was the first pitcher to step up to the mound. Clemens was emotional. The moment was huge for any pitcher. 
even one of the greatest pitchers in baseball, who that season had a 20-1 and record coming into the game. Well, the second batter up got a single, and Clemens later tried to pick him off at first base, but he threw the ball into the stands. And the first inning, the Devil Rays scored two runs. The pitcher for the Devil Rays, Tanyan Sturz, stepped up to the mound next. His close friend died in one of the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center, and he too was overcome by the moment. The game was also the first game back from injury for Yankees captain Derek Jeter, and he remembers the game and its details to this day. Well, that night, despite a loss, the Yankees clinched the division thanks to a Red Sox loss, but there was no celebration in the Yankees clubhouse. It was too sacred an occasion. But from that point forward and for the rest of the season, the Yankees continued to blossom. Over and over again, you heard the players say, since 9-11. Since 9-11, the city came together. Since 9-11, baseball means more than it ever has. Since 9-11, the Yankees are not on a mission for themselves, but for New York. And since 9-11, God Bless America has become the anthem. Now, we all have dates and times and events that just like the Yankees, we can borrow and make our own to help us turn the table and construct a new way of living and leading. And perhaps that day for you is today. From this day forward, you will lead in a new way. From this day forward, you can be constructive and construct the life you were meant to build. Now, I find it interesting that the Yankees borrowed a date, a feeling to construct a new purpose in playing and winning. And we all borrow things to inspire us to give greater meaning to our life or efforts. Great leaders are great borrowers. Like you often need to borrow to have the resources to construct a house, you may also need to borrow a date or a reason or inspiration to construct your team, your purpose, your future. Now, here's another dimension of being a constructive leader. Constructive leaders don't force their own mood or agenda or even their own view. They realize that their path in life may not be the path that others follow. Great leaders don't impose their frame of reference. They try to understand the other person's frame and build on it. Think of it this way. Think of yourself as helping others construct a building of sorts in which they will work, live, and make their life. And this building is a framework of attitudes, perspectives, habits, and skills that will guide them throughout their life. Now, you're not able to build the building for them, but what you can do is put up scaffolding, a temporary structure around their building that they can stand on, that is a support, that they can borrow and use as they create their own capabilities. So by your example, by your words, by your encouragement, by your leading, Give them the scaffolding that they can borrow. Another key talent of construction leaders is the ability to make things simple. Too many leaders make things complicated. Have you ever given your team instructions that are too complicated for them to follow or establish systems that are too confusing? When you do, this robs you of your ability to be constructive. So follow this simple rule. This is something I learned a long time ago, and it has helped me ever since. Start to follow the rule of writing. If you want to get clear in your leading and your thinking, write it down first. It will clarify your understanding and help you communicate better. Writing things down, constructing them on paper, will help you build better in real ways. 
You see, when you construct your leadership or strategy on paper, you spend time refining it like a set of plans for a house, and you now make things easier to build. Constructive leaders are expert at making things simple and communication more clear. And you'll be surprised how much this helps you build your team and find results. Next, in general on teams, in your business, as you lead, after all is said and done, there is far more said than done. Being constructive is often about talking less and doing more. You know, sometimes in families and teams, we get into the habit of talking about the same issues or concepts over and over again without much progress. And this cycle of talk and talk and talk eventually creates stagnant and unempowered teams. So being a constructive leader means having a clear bias for action. You're likely to do before you talk. Your meetings are about actions and not about whys and why nots. And when you become action-oriented on your team, you are constructing. For example, do your team meetings emphasize action? What actions will be done today, tomorrow, or this week? And who will do them? When will you review those actions? Those types of things are what constructive leaders do. Imagine trying to construct a home without knowing the framing will be done by Wednesday so the electrical can begin on Thursday so the drywall can be started next week. I've learned when dealing with my children to ask a few important questions and ask them over and over again. Here's what they are. What will you do next? How will you do it? And when will it be done? And my kids got tired of me asking. I know they would say, what will I do next? How will I do it? And when will it be done? Soon, they had a greater bias for action without my having to say anything. You know, my favorite story about having a bias for action comes from the entertainment industry. When Bob Iger was the new CEO for Disney, they had just completed the Pixar acquisition and the strategic path for Disney was becoming more clear. They wanted to acquire the right IP and characters for their merchandising and movie-making machine. The name for acquisition atop their list was Marvel. But there were dozens of reasons not to pursue Marvel. Marvel already had contracts with Paramount. They had sold Spider-Man to Columbia Pictures. Hulk was controlled by Sony and the Fantastic Four by Fox. And it would be a complicated and very difficult deal. And that alone would cause most companies not to act. In addition, the person who ran Marvel was Ike Perlmutter, a very reclusive guy, and he was penurious and tight-fisted to the extreme. And to boot, Disney's board was not on board. Iger had internal politics and problems with the pursuit of Marvel, and that could cost him his job. And Disney would want the company outright without complications of bringing Marvel management along with the company, and that would be difficult. So, Bob Iger tried to arrange a meeting with Marvel. And you wouldn't think that that would be too hard, right, for a CEO to get a meeting with another CEO. But he couldn't get to Ike Perlmutter. So, it sat on the sidelines for several months. But Iger said that Kevin Mayer, the EVP of strategy at Disney, kept asking Iger on a near daily basis to find a way to get the meeting set. His persistence and insistence for action spurred Iger and others on. Finally, based on the harassment of Mayer, Iger got his meeting. 
It took a lot of dinners and persuasion and lots and lots of work, but the deal got done and Disney purchased Marvel for over $4 billion. And since then, Marvel has brought in over $18 billion in box office sales alone. Here's the point. Iger had every reason to just talk and not to act. But Mayer's bias and energy for action helped him get there. Talk is cheap. Action makes all the difference. When you're trying as a parent to be constructive with your children, act as much as you can. If you want to build their faith in God, act. Have nightly prayer with them. If you want to build their faith in themselves, help them try new things. Help them fail a time or two and see that their failure in one thing doesn't mean failure in life. If you want them to chart a course for life, then give them experiences that expose them to life. Now, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you've heard or seen pictures of the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa or Burj Tower in Dubai. It is the tallest structure ever built by man and is 2,700 feet tall. The elevators inside the building travel at 40 miles per hour. It has the highest swimming pool in the world on the 76th floor and the highest mosque on the 154th floor. The tower uses 250,000 gallons of water a day, and to cool the tower, there's air conditioning power equivalent to 26 million pounds of melting ice that is used each day. The biggest challenge in the construction of this building was at the beginning. 33 test holes were drilled into the bedrock underneath the site, and the sandstone was found to be very weak. Samples were taken up to 140 meters in depth, and it was still weak all the way down. As a result, over 120,000 tons of concrete were poured in the base to support the half a million tons of weight of the building. Now, in constructing your team, your life, your family, the same goes for you. As you help others in the construction of their tallest selves and go about building your strongest team, most of the work is done at the beginning, in the foundation. And that beginning is building you and your mindset for how to construct, not just lead. So, as we end today, remember the mother of M. Night Shyamalan, her goal was to help him follow his passion and be the best he could be. Lead like a goose, like a peloton, with the mindset to help others learn to lead, not just lead them. Remember, your goal is to develop ownership through efficacy, capability, identity, and proximity to others who act like owners. And like the Yankees, borrow some reasons to spur your team to higher levels of commitment. And be clear and simple in the way you lead. And watch, you will build a team and a family that can rise to the tallest heights possible. Most of all, Thanks for being here today. And join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.